0: So I just make sure I uh, pair uh, my iPad with the correct Wi Fi network here. Just one moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still snowing outside. It's beautiful. just have one more quick moment of prayer before we jump into Psalm 5. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your tremendous goodness to us. And as we seek to encounter you through your word one more time today, I ask that you bless this time. And may, uh, may you use it how you will. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 5, it has a uh, uh, honestly, kind of recently become a, a favorite of mine, and I just felt moved to share share just the goodness here with you today. So we're just going to read it through really quick and then look a little bit closer at uh, some things. So Psalm 5, beginning in verse 1, says this, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my... For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Absolutely a beautiful, beautiful poetic prayer from David so, so long ago. And to better kind of understand it a little bit. We're going to look at the uh, kind of the the structure of the psalm and the poem to, to see what David is is saying to us even better. Um, there's there's kind of five sections or verses that um, that David wrote this in. Even though poetically they are verses, you can understand why that would be a a more confusing term to use here because we have other verses in Scripture, right? And so we'll call them sections for now, but there's five sections there. Section one is this verses one through three. Uh, appeal for Yahweh to hear the words that are going to be coming, to consider them, and that considering them in a, in a judgment sense. It's a, a poetic prayer that is written in a kind of a low place, A tough season that David is in. David does not ask God to consider his praise, but rather his groaning. He feels that the difficulties he is facing are contrary to what Yahweh would have for him. And so he appeals to the one who can help. There's acknowledgement of Yahweh's sovereignty and a claim to personal relationship. Yahweh is not just king and God, but my king and my God. David acknowledges that Yahweh hears his prayer and how he anticipates an encounter with him. In section 2, verses 4 through 6, David outlines a general description of the worst kinds of behavior to God, boastfulness, violence, deceitfulness. And we'll look closer at this in a little bit, but here David points out that these people do not please Yahweh, they cannot stand in judgment before Yahweh, and that they will be destroyed. In section 3, verses 7 and 8, David declares his confidence in Yahweh's steadfast love. The Hebrew word chesed here, it means uh, mercy and grace. He vows to worship Yahweh, and he appeals to him for guidance because of his enemies. In section 4, David then describes his enemies in in verses 9 and 10. He describes them as, wait for it, boastful, violent, and deceitful. Remember that description from before, from section 2? David says, this is how my enemies are. And then comes section 5. Verses 11 and 12, they conclude this poetic prayer by describing the appropriate behavior of the one under the provision of a personal and sovereign king and God. The one taking refuge in Yahweh should rejoice, singing with joy. Notice that the circumstances don't seem to have changed. Whatever was making David groan earlier is not said to have disappeared, but the perspective has changed relying on the sovereignty and the grace and the mercy of God. The final couplets are statements of faith to what Yahweh does for his refugee. He protects them. He gives them cause to exult in him. He blesses them, and he covers them with favor. So These are kind of the five sections of this this psalm, and if you take a closer look at Psalm 5, you will see a literary structure that is quite familiar or often shows up in the pages of scripture, something called a chiasm. Chiasm is a way of organizing a story or a poem or other work, building to a culminating point of emphasis in the middle, and then rhyming its way back down the other side. So here's what it looks like. Sections uh, one, two, and three are building up. Sections one and two are building up to section three, and then it kind of rhymes its way back down the other side of the hill, if you will, Sections 4 and 5. And you'll notice how sections 1 and 5, on a uh, kind of a careful reading, they're both relating to the sovereignty of Yahweh, His ability to bless, protect, and vindicate. Section 1 is asking for it, and section 5 is describing its reality. And then notice in sections 2 and 4 are both describing evil people. Section 2 is describing God's relationship to that evil. Section 4 is David describing the evil of his enemies. So kind of rhyming subjects, if you will. And then notice the pinnacle of the chiasm, section 3, which focuses on the abiding and guiding presence of a merciful and gracious God. This subtlety is uh, important to catch, as it can be tempting to read sometimes a, a poem like this, with the wrong point of emphasis. For instance, uh, when, when I see sections two and four and their descriptions of the kinds of people that displease Yahweh and are deserving of judgment, I can be tempted to think that this is the main thing that David is seeking to communicate. That this is what I need to address most. It's not that sections two and four are not important. If they were not important, they wouldn't be there at all. They are important, and as we'll see in a moment, they are vital, enabling us to more fully grasp this message of David. But observing the chiastic structure of the psalm helps us maintain our focus where it should be on the abiding and guiding presence of our merciful and gracious God. So that's kind of... A bit of nerdy structure, poetic literary stuff there for you, but I promise there's a, a, a bit of a, a payoff here shortly because we're going to take a closer look at David himself, the author of this, this psalm. I want to consider section 2 for a moment, verses 4 through 6. David writes, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Again, we see David who lays out a general description of the worst kinds of behavior to God. This is what God detests most of all boastfulness, violence, and deceitfulness. And you know, we can see this in other areas of Scripture. We don't only grab that from Psalm 5, but. it's it's very much present in either direct statements in other places or definitely implied to be so from narratives. David isn't breaking theological ground here as much as he is reminding us of a reality that is laid out in other places in scripture. And uh, we have really no way of knowing for sure at what point in his life David wrote this. Again, we we can surmise that it's in a, a, a lower point. So Perhaps it was earlier in his life when he was a fugitive from Saul. Maybe it was at a a lower moment later as his family um, drama and dysfunction played out in in rather sad and tragic ways. Uh, We don't know for sure. But uh, we can see that one thing is is clear. From a 30,000-foot view, and you really zoom out and you look at David's life, we see that he himself can fit into this category laid out in section 2. Is David boastful? Well, at one time in his life, for sure, we know that David disregarded the command of Yahweh to not trust in himself or in his military might. David ordered a census of Israel. Now, the most common reason a census is taken is usually to make sure that everyone is being taxed, right? That's the, the reason back in the day of Caesar Augustus, the, the whole issue around Jesus' birth being not in Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph were living, but in Bethlehem, they had to move because of this tax that Caesar Augustus was doing. He always wanted to make sure that everybody was counted, because once everybody was counted, we could make sure everybody paid, right? Right? Um, that's kind of a more common reason, but David's census was for a different purpose. He wants to know specifically how many people in this kingdom are of an age to, quote, draw a sword. He wants to know how many people could, in theory, respond to a call to arms. He wants to prove to himself and to those around him, other neighboring kingdoms, people within his nation, just how big and bad his army can be. And God punishes his boastfulness. Deceitful. Is David deceitful? Well, David has a bad habit of twisting the truth into something more convenient for the moment. Um, We kind of first see this in in his story in Scripture. Just before David becomes a fugitive from King Saul, David asks Saul's son Jonathan to lie to the king so that they can learn exactly what King Saul's attitude is toward David. And then when things turn ugly, David flees the palace at Gibeah and he runs to the high priest Ahimelech at Nob. But instead of telling the truth there, David fabricates a story about being on an errand for the king. And soon after that, he seeks asylum in the Philistine city of Gath. He's a grown man now. He kind of hopes he won't be recognized as David. But sure enough, somebody identifies him as the Israelite champion. And in order to escape, David pretends to be insane, drawing weird symbols and shapes on the doors of the gate and drooling all over his beard. I won't demonstrate that for you, but yeah. There are further examples of David's deceitfulness that we could look at, but for time we're only going to look at the most prominent, which is his adultery with Bathsheba. After the inappropriate liaison, and upon learning that Bathsheba was pregnant, David has her husband Uriah brought back from the battle where the text seems to imply David should have been in the first place. And David sends Uriah home to his wife in the hopes of deceiving Uriah that he is indeed the father of Bathsheba's child, So that's the beginnings of a deception there. As we continue that story, we'll regrettably see just how violent of a person David could be because when Uriah refuses to go home to his wife, David sends him back to the battle with a deadly message. Uriah is to be sent into the thick of the battle, and at a key moment, his fellow soldiers are to fall back and leave him alone to die. David then takes Bathsheba as his wife and tries to pretend that everything is above board the fallout of each of these lies and the murder of Uriah is chronicled for us in the books of Samuel and Chronicles. It's a tragic story that's going to play out into incredible family dysfunction that that frankly will never leave the house of Judah. It's clear that David's life testifies, yeah, he's a boastful guy. He's a violent man. He can be very deceitful. And according to his words in Psalm 5, he has no business being in the presence of Yahweh. And it is to this story, not just this general human experience, it's to David's own story that he writes the pinnacle of Psalm 5. Verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Even though the testimony of David's life should preclude him from the presence of God, David lays a bold claim on the hospitality of Yahweh. It says i will enter your house how can this be only through the abundance of the steadfast love the chesed of yahweh his mercy and grace as the apostle paul would say over a millennia later where sin increased grace abounded all the more there is enough grace For the worst of sin. In fact, there is more than enough grace for all of sin. For us, that means that like Him, we can confidently claim our place in the presence of God, not because of our merit, but because He is good, He is gracious, He is merciful, He loves us, He has atoned for all sin, and He intercedes for us even now. It is by grace that we have been saved through the faith in his word. It is not our own doing. It's the gift of God. We don't belong because of our merit. No one can make that boastful claim. It's all because of Jesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And David appeals to Yahweh for that guidance, for how should I walk now? In verse 80, he says, Lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. That brings us to section four, our enemies. You know, I can't tell you for sure who or what was in the mind of David when he wrote of his enemies. But I do know that for us today, Our enemies are clearly shown to us in Scripture. Paul says it pretty succinctly in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The New Testament era Jesus follower has no human enemies. There might be people who think they are your enemies. There might be people who act like they are your enemies. There might be people who will do everything they can to convince you that they are your enemies. But our struggle is not with flesh and blood. The New Testament era Jesus follower has no human enemies. There are only two camps There are brothers and sisters, and there are potential future brothers and sisters. Those are the only two different kinds of people that the Jesus follower is called to see. So then, who are our enemies? Well, they are the unseen supernatural forces of evil that seek to wage war on Yahweh by attacking his people. That's who our enemies are. Sometimes this is overtly offensive, seeking to end the very lives of Jesus' followers. But often in our culture, the attacks are much more subversive. You see, our enemy knows that he doesn't need to end our life to destroy us. In fact, sometimes ending our life would thwart his evil agenda. Most often, the attacks are simply seeking to get us to doubt or disbelieve the gospel of Jesus and who he says we are. David appropriately addresses this behavior of our enemy in that fourth section of Psalm 5, beginning in verse 9. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an empty grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. So church family, just to say that may the lies of the enemy be silenced, the lies that say that we are as worthless as our worst day, the lies that say that we are hopeless, helpless, unlovable wretches, for we have heard better news than those lies. Jesus is king. He has lived the life we could not live. He has died the death we deserve to die He has risen to life to give us new life. He has called us righteous and he has given his righteousness to us. And he has prepared a place for us in his presence. And so I would just speak over us now this beautiful benediction that is Psalm 5. So let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with his shield. I invite you to pray with me. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the tremendous goodness that we find in you. We can find ourselves in our own ways relating to David and recognizing that we really don't deserve to be in your presence at all. We thank you that what brings us into your presence isn't our merit, but it is the merit of Jesus. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, that steadfast love, that love that will not let me go, that love that brought you to this world to live that life that we could not live, to die that death that we deserve to die, to rise to life, to give us life. Jesus, we praise you for that. We are grateful to you for letting us find refuge in you. And we recognize that like David, that doesn't necessarily mean that our circumstances in the here and now are going to change, but it means that our perspective can you have spoken to us a sure word that you are, you are headed to heaven to prepare a place for us and that if you are going to go and prepare a place, you're going to come and receive us to yourself that where you are, we might be as well. May we rejoice in you. May we exult in your name. And may we find shelter under your wings. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church family, I just want to say thank you for tuning in and worshiping with us. We pray that you have a most blessed Sabbath afternoon.